so much. I appreciate it, man. Is this good for you? Yeah, 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 it's awesome. Thanks. And real quick, I, I would be remiss. If in just a moment, you'll have a chance to make some noise for your youth pastor. But I, I get to go to a lot of youth groups now in, in the state and hang out with a lot of different youth pastors and at different churches and see different communities. And I will say this, being 100% honest, that this is not fluff, I'm not just saying this, that you all have something special here. You really do. Your youth pastor is amazing. And I think God's doing something special in this room and in this group. I, truly. So can we make some noise for your youth pastor? He's awesome. And I can say this. He's an even better friend than he is a youth pastor. And I think that, I think that that's, that's more important than being a good pastor is being a good friend. Because out of, out of relationship, I think, comes what God has for you. So thanks so much. You're awesome. And I'm just honored that I get to hang out with all of you tonight. It's going to be a fun night. You got a Bible? Go ahead and get your Bible out. We're going to be in John chapter 19 tonight. John chapter 19. And as Pastor Jeremy just said, we have a two-year-old son named Jude. And I met a Jude tonight. He's over. There he is. Hi, Jude. Um, I, think, I, think, I think my son is cuter than you, but I'm, I have to say that he is my son. He is my son. He's my son. He's my son, okay? He's the cutest Jude in the world, okay? It's just, that's what I, I it, it's, he's my son. But this, this boy is two years old. This boy is two years old. He desperately needs Jesus, okay? So if you think about it, pray for my son. He is currently probably destroying my parents' house. He's staying with his grandma tonight, hanging out. He is probably destroying their house. So uh, say a prayer for him if you think about it. He's awesome. He's an adorable kid, but he's a wild man. We've been calling him the Tasmanian devil recently because he is just, he, he's, he's crazy, but we love him so much. And as we get started tonight, I want to ask you a couple questions. First question I want to ask you is this. How many of you are old enough to drive? Like, raise your hand if you are old enough to drive. Okay, raise it up high so I can see. So, okay, we've got, we've got quite a few people in here who are old enough to drive. Uh, raise your hand if maybe, maybe not you, but you at least know someone who is a bad driver. Raise your hand. You know someone who's a bad driver. Okay, keep your hand up. Okay. Raise your hand if the person you know to be a bad driver is currently in this room. Keep it up. Keep it. Okay, we need to have a special prayer service for those people right after this service is over. Wow. Some of you thought you knew your friends in here. I wouldn't consider myself a bad driver, but uh, I have had a few of my own moments. One of my moments happened when I was about 16 years old. I was coming home from school. I was riding in my Jeep. I had a 1998 cherry red Jeep Cherokee Sport. Okay, it had a lift on it. It had a brush guard on the front. It had light guards on the back. Okay, it, it, was, it had a lot of miles on it, too. A lot of miles on it, but there was a lot of life left in it, if you know what I'm saying. Like, it was, it was awesome. I loved it. It was loud. It rode kind of rough. I just, I just loved the thing. It was great. On the way home from school in my Jeep. I'm about to get on 70 Highway, but before I could get on 70 Highway, I had to, I had to turn left on this road called, I think it was Chrysler. I had to turn left on this road, Chrysler, over in Independence, and when I went into the left turn, I, uh, I went into the left turn just a little bit too fast, slightly, slightly faster than I should have. And so I head into this turn, and when I started to turn the steering wheel, my car started doing this thing. Like, I don't know if you've ever been in a car when it's done that, but I started turning the wheel, and no joke, it started doing that thing. 
And because I was such an experienced driver and I was such a wise young man, I just decided that the best thing to do would be to turn the wheel even harder. So I just started whipping that thing. The more I whipped it, the more it... Before I knew it, I was all the way across the road. I was no longer driving. I was drifting. Okay, I had no control over my vehicle. No joke. And I mean, it was just... And I did that until I finally hit a curb. Okay, so I'm just pulling the steering wheel as hard as I possibly can. And I just, I hit this curb. I end up in someone's yard, in someone else's yard. So I'm barreling through their yard. I almost hit a sign that was up in their yard. I realized I was about to hit the sign. So I jerked the wheel back onto the road, drove down the road. As I drove away from that place, I thought to myself, is there any chance that there's something wrong with my vehicle after what I just put it through? And then I got smart and realized, no, of course not. Jeeps were made for trespassing in people's yards. Like, that's why they were made. Why else would they be made? This thing's fine. And I hit the gas and kept on driving. Well, I jumped on the freeway, got on I-70, headed towards my house. As I'm driving on the freeway, A friend of mine, who was also at my high school with me, pulls up next to me on my left. He's driving a blue Mustang. Okay, pulls up next to me on my left. And how many of you know, when you see someone that you know in another car on the freeway, your maturity level drops by like five years immediately. Come on, you know what I'm talking about. So I see this guy, and I'm like making faces at him. I'm like, oh, oh, he can't even hear me, but I'm talking to him as if he's right there. Come on, you know what I'm talking about. Well, he rolls his window down. We're on I-70. He rolls his window down and starts pointing at me. And I'm like, no, you, man, you. You know what I mean? Like we're having that remember the Titans moment. Like I'm pointing at him yelling. He can't even hear me. But his window, he rolls his down. I roll my window down. And he keeps pointing. And he, he finally, he yells, you're smoking. And I'm like, what? You know, what? I can't. And we're on, on Highway 70. We've slowed down to about 55 at this point. He's like, you're smoking. I literally yelled this across the freeway. I kid you not. I said, no, no, I don't smoke. I don't smoke. <laughs> wouldn't catch a hint. I was wouldn't catch a hint guy. I'm like, no, I, I don't smoke. He finally said, nah, bro, your car is on fire. Well, I look in my driver's side mirror. Looks fine. It looked great. I look out the windshield. My car looked fine. It looked great. Well, I look in my passenger side mirror, and in my passenger side mirror, I saw a plume of dark black smoke pouring out of the side and the back of my 1998 Jeep Cherokee Sport on the freeway, leaving a trail of black smoke down the highway. I lost my mind, okay? I I slam on the brakes. I jump off the freeway onto the shoulder of the road. My friend, now that I think about it, evidently, maybe he wasn't a friend at all. He just kept on going, like, took off down the freeway, left me there. I jump out. I jump out of my car. My car is going up in black smoke. I grab my cell phone, okay? There were no cameras on cell phones at the time, but I grab my cell phone. I pull that thing out. I start calling everyone I know. Like, I'm calling the tow truck. I'm calling the police. Call my dad. Call Ghostbusters. Anyone that I can think of to call, I am calling in that moment because I don't know what's going on. I don't know how to fix anything if it's broken. I'm worried my car is going to explode. So I'm, like, stepping back from it on the freeway into the grass. It's a true story. I was probably about two minutes away from just blowing my car up. 
It didn't last much longer after that incident. But I look back on that moment and I think to myself, how long was my car smoking? Like, how long had I been driving and black smoke was pouring out of my vehicle? Why didn't anyone else point it out to me, first of all? But how long had it been happening? And I thought to myself, how come, how come I didn't even notice that it was happening? How come I didn't notice all the smoke that was pouring out of my car? I was the one in the car. Well, the reason that I could not see it is because my perception was limited by my perspective. What I saw was limited by where I sat. But I had a friend who drove up next to me, and he saw something that was going on in my car that I could not see because he was sitting where I was not sitting. Students, there is one who sees things in your life that you cannot see because he sits where you do not sit. His name is Jesus. He lives outside of time and space, yet he operates within it. There are things that he can see in your life that you cannot see. See, Jesus does not see your problems from your perspective. He sees it from his perspective. Jesus actually has solutions to problems that you and I don't even know we have yet. He does not see us the same way that we see ourselves. He's got a completely different perspective. He loves us more than we could ever love ourselves. He knows us more than we can know ourselves. And he could take us places that we could never take ourselves. That is who our God is. That is what our God does. Tonight I want to talk just a little bit about the the perspective of Jesus, the perspective of God. I want to preach a message. The title of the message is this, From Garden to Garden. From Garden to Garden. It'll make sense in just a few minutes, but if you're taking notes, write that down. From Garden to Garden. We're in John chapter 19, and we'll start in the 16th verse. John chapter 19, verse 16. says this, Finally, Pilate turned him over, Jesus, to be crucified. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus. Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. Here they crucified him and with him two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And the sign was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. The chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them, with the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot or dice who will get it. This happened so that the scripture might be fulfilled, which said, they divided my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. So this is what the soldiers did. Skipping down to verse 28, it says this, later, knowing that all was now completed, and so that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. And with that, he bowed his head, and he gave up his spirit. Now, I have heard this story countless times in my life. My dad is a pastor, my grandfather, a pastor, my aunts and uncles, pastors. I've been in church my whole life, Sunday school as a kid and youth group as a teenager. 
heard this story hundreds of times, probably thousands of times. And every single time I've heard it, I've almost, I've almost always had this thought come to my head. God, how in the world, how in the world did you allow this to happen to your son Jesus? God, how did you allow your son Jesus to go through this kind of punishment and be nailed to a cross and have a crown of thorns put on his head and have him be beaten beyond recognition? How in the world did you allow this to happen? And I think to myself, Jesus, how did you allow them to do this to you? How did you, how did you just allow yourself to be nailed to a cross and not do anything about it? Why did God allow this to happen? And as I start asking that question to myself, God always reminds me that anything he allows, he also has the power to anoint. And God was about to anoint this situation. If you don't know what anointing means, that is the grace that God puts on a situation to have his will carried out in a situation. When God anoints a person, it's the grace he puts on them so they can carry out the dream God has put within them. And God was about to anoint this situation. It was the worst day in history, but it was also the best day in history. It was the worst day because in this moment, Jesus experienced temporary separation from his heavenly father. It was the best moment because he purchased eternal salvation for you and for me. It was the worst and the best all in one. And in verse 16, it says that that Jesus was, was handed over and that the soldiers took charge of Jesus. But see, Jesus, he's the king of kings and the Lord of lords, and he's in control. So Jesus had to allow them to take charge of him. And these men did not even realize it in the moment. But when Jesus was allowing them to take charge of him, he was really giving them a chance at a future and a hope like they never knew. The Bible says they took Jesus, made him carry his own cross, and they crucified him not alone but with two other people. There was a crook on his left and a crook on his right, and Jesus was in the middle. He was directly in the middle, right between the two others, in the center. Now, why is that important? Why is it important that Jesus would be crucified in the middle, that he would be put in the center? Is it because he was the second oldest or the second best looking? No, the reason that Jesus was put in the center was to fulfill prophecy that had been spoken about Jesus hundreds of years earlier, which said that Jesus would be numbered among the sinners, which meant that Jesus would not just be crucified with sinners, but Jesus would be crucified as a sinner and not just as a sinner, but as the sinner of sinners, as the worst of the worst. And I don't know about you, but I'm so grateful that Jesus was willing to become the worst of the worst so that you and I might receive his very best, which is salvation and eternal life with him. Second Corinthians chapter five in the 21st verse, he made him who knew no sin to become sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus was willing to become everything we would ever deal with, every issue we would ever go through so that we could receive the best that he had for us. He became the worst so we could have his best. He did it for us. That's why Jesus was in the middle. It wasn't by accident. Every detail of this situation was was planned and known about. God knew all along what was going to happen. He was crucified in the middle. And when Jesus was crucified, on the top of his cross, there was a sign. And the sign read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. And most people who would read that sign would think, oh, that's great. They put this sign above the cross to honor Jesus. They they put this sign above the cross to bring glory to Jesus. But the truth is that sign was not put on the top of the cross to bring glory to Jesus. It was put on the top of the cross to make a joke out of Jesus. They did it in jest. 
The only reason that sign was on top of that cross was to make a mockery of Jesus. But here's what the enemies of Jesus did not realize, is that even their attempts to mock him would actually magnify him. You see, the sign was written in three languages. It was written in Hebrew Aramaic, it was written in Greek, and it was written in Latin. Well, Hebrew Aramaic is the language of prophecy, which in that moment Jesus was fulfilling. Greek was the language of wisdom, and Jesus is the wise counselor. And Latin, it is the language of governing authority. And according to the prophet Isaiah, when Jesus grew up, all government would be on his shoulders. Why? Because he is the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. He is the beginning and the end, the alpha, the omega, the first and the last. Like him, there has never been any other, and there never will be. He's the one who never leaves us, never forsakes us, the one who created the sun, the moon, the stars, and everything underneath it. And that sign on top of the cross actually magnified Jesus and pointed to who he really was. And there was no denying it. Why? Because our God will be magnified. He will be. Even though we live in a society that tries to mock my God, he will be magnified. Even though we live in a society that tries to mock his sacrifice, he will be magnified. One day every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He will be magnified. And there was a moment that happened in Luke chapter 19 in verse 40, where Jesus was being worshipped and magnified by people, and the religious leaders of the day had a serious problem with it, and Jesus spoke up for his followers who were worshipping him and said, hey, leave him alone. They will worship me. And even if they don't worship me, the very stones of the earth will cry out. See, the thing about Jesus is that even if the created beings that were created in his image do not worship him, the very creation around us will cry out to him. The mountains will bow down. The seas will clap their hands. The lightning bolts will report to him. The wind and the waves, they will obey him. And I don't know about you, but I refuse to be out-worshipped by an inanimate object. You see, you and I are the only portion of creation that actually has the breath of God inside of our lungs, according to Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7. Our only reasonable response to the breath that's in our lungs should be that praise flows out of our mouth as we give God praise. I think that God is looking for a group of students in Lee Summit, Missouri, and Grain Valley, Missouri, and Blue Springs, Missouri, and Independence, Missouri, who would stand up and say, I am not ashamed to worship the one who went to the cross for me. I'm not ashamed to give him some praise and make some noise and talk about him on my social media. I'm not ashamed to worship God and give him glory and praise and honor that he deserves. I think he's looking for a generation of students that would stand up and say, I am not ashamed to be who God called me to be and do what God called me to do. And God's going to be magnified. It had better come from us. It had better come from me. They tried to mock him, but Jesus was still magnified, and the religious leaders, they were furious. They went to Pontius Pilate, and they said, listen, there's a sign that was put on top of the cross it's kind of a problem. They said, Pilate, here's the deal. It says that Jesus is the king of the Jews, but he's not really the king of the Jews. He just claimed to be the king of the Jews. Can we change it? I love what Pilate said. What I have written, I have written. And they kept it the same. See, I think the truth is that these Pharisees, these religious leaders, they started to realize that if they left that up on the top of the cross, that in some small way they had to recognize who Jesus really was. And here's the thing about the Pharisees. They didn't want to recognize who Jesus was because if they recognized who Jesus was, it meant they had to reconsider who they were. See, when we admit who he is, we have to confront who we are. 
a while back, I was, I was preaching at a youth group in Oklahoma City. And it was a service much like this one. It was a great youth group, awesome youth pastor. I was friends with him. And I was there at the service. I was getting ready to preach. And I was ready to go. I was in the zone. I had prayed myself hot. I had thought myself clear, and I was about to let myself go. Like, I was ready to go. I was in the zone to preach. And right before service starts, this dude walks up to me, and he decides he wants to have a conversation with me. Like, right before service starts, and I'm getting ready to preach. Comes up, he says, hey, how are you? I said, I'm good. How are you? Good. Great. And I'm back in the zone. You know, like, I'm kind of annoyed because I'm, like, in the zone, right? I'm trying to be super spiritual and get ready to preach. He said, it's going to be a great night. I said, yeah, yeah, it's going to be a great night. Praise God, you know, trying to sound spiritual. It's going to be a great night. It's going to be awesome. He said, I'm really glad you're here. I'm like, this dude just won't take a hand. I am so glad to be here. It's an honor to be here. Thank you so much. Honor to be here. Well, worship started, and song one happened, and song two happened, and song three was underway. I was about to go up and preach, and while I was standing there about to walk up and take the stage, this still small voice spoke to me and said, is there any chance that the man that you kind of wrote off earlier and didn't really want to talk to in that moment, yeah, is there any chance that he's actually the senior pastor of this church? That's what the voice was saying to me. I thought, there is no way that that is the senior pastor to this church. No, no way. But I'll check the website on my phone just to be sure. So I pulled out my phone. I checked the website. Yes, that was the senior pastor of the church that I was about to preach in. I knew the youth pastor. I didn't know the lead pastor. I had, I had never met him before. All of a sudden, before I walked up to preach God's word, I had to reconsider my attitude. I had to reconsider my actions. See, because I realized in that moment, if, if he's the pastor, that means he preaches up here every week. I'm just... I'm just preaching here tonight. If he's the pastor, that means that he shepherds this flock all the time. I'm just here to give one word today. If, if he's the pastor, he's worked hard to build this church and build this platform. I'm just a guest on this platform for one night. See, the moment that I recognized who that dude was, I had to reconsider who I was. And I think there's a lot of us who need to have that moment, not with a man or a woman, but with God. See, because when we recognize who Jesus is, we've got to reconsider who we are. And when we recognize that he's in control and that he is God, that means that we're not God. When we recognize that he's God, that means our money is not God. Our relationships are not God. Our job is not God. Our grades are not God. Our gifts and our abilities and sports and talents and all of those things, they cannot be God because there's only one God. And the moment that we admit who he is, we've got to confront who we are and the way we've been living. And here's what happens. When we recognize who Jesus is, it changes the way we talk, the way we act, the way we live, the way we give, the way we serve, the way we sacrifice, the way we judge and don't judge. It changes everything. These Pharisees didn't want to admit who Jesus was. And there was another group of people around the cross that day. At the foot of the cross, there were these men who were Roman soldiers. And the Roman soldiers, I want you to think about this. They had a front row seat. A front row seat to the greatest and worst event in human history. Front row seat. And they were content to busy themselves at the foot of the cross with a game of dice. Probably Yahtzee. Had to be. They busied themselves with dice at the foot of the cross of Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. How is that possible? How did they do that? How could, they, how could they honestly sit there and live with themselves? Here's, here's how. Because to these men, the cross had become common. 
See, it's a very dangerous place to be in when the cross becomes common to us. See, these people were putting people up on the cross every day. It was a way of life. It was another day at the office. It was their routine. It was their normal. It was their regular. This life was all that they knew, and they were so far into it that there was no going back. The Roman soldier lifestyle, once you were this deep, there was no going back, and it became almost a bondage on your life. And these men had actually become comfortable in their bondage. This proves it, that they were able to play dice at the foot of the cross. And what happens when we become comfortable in our bondage is that all of a sudden we don't see clearly. See, because when bondage becomes comfortable, freedom becomes unrecognizable. And they were standing at the foot of the cross of freedom and they did not even know it. Is there any pets people in here? You, you, you like pets? Raise your hand. Come on, be proud if you like pets. Raise your hand if you like dogs. Raise your hand if you like cats. Keep your hand up if you like cats. Let me see who who my cat people are. Come on, be proud. We are going to pray for you, okay? We we need to get the anointing oil out. Pastor Jeremy, do we have anointing oil? We need to... I'm kidding, I'm kidding. I don't don't hate cats. Okay, I do. I don't don't like cats. But when I was growing up, when I was growing up, I'd always ask for pets. And my parents would never give me pets. Like on every Christmas list and birthday list, I would always ask for a pet. I wasn't allowed to get a dog. I wasn't allowed to have a cat because my mom doesn't like demons, so that was out of the question. I would never be allowed to have a pet, so I just started asking for some exotic stuff. Like I'm like, I want a boa constrictor snake. Like I want an iguana. I want a parrot. I want the actual toucan, toucan Sam from Fruit Loops. Like I'm asking for crazy stuff. Well, eventually they let me have a turtle. They bought me a turtle. I gave him a very original name. His name was Franklin, okay? Very creative. Very original. And about two months after having this turtle, my parents came to me and they had this conversation with me. They said, listen, it's time. I said, what do you mean it's time? And I'm young. I'm like seven years old. They said, it's time to get rid of Franklin. I said, seriously? They said, yeah. I said, why? They said, well, you haven't really been taking care of him. We've been doing all the work. This is your pet. You have to take responsibility for him. It's time for him to go. I said, okay. So my dad and I, we, we took Franklin and I took him out to the backyard. We're walking out there like I'm emotional. You know, I'm saying things I don't really mean as I'm setting him down in the grass. Like, go on, get out of here. Never want to see you again. You know, just emotional kid. Set him down in the grass. I'll never forget what happened after we put him down in the grass. Here's what happened. Absolutely Nothing. He went nowhere. He wouldn't walk. He wouldn't turn. Didn't look back. Nothing. Like, would not move. We eventually had to go in the house, and he just stayed there in the grass where he was. Like, I don't know if a hawk came up and ate him. I don't know what happened. He was small. It could have happened. I don't know. We left him right there. The thing was, this turtle was not going to go anywhere because he did not know that he could go anywhere. See, his whole life he had been in a little glass bowl with some water. And he had gotten so used to life behind the glass, he had no idea how to handle the grass, which was freedom. He had no clue. See, his bondage had become comfortable, so freedom became unrecognizable. He did not even realize that freedom was right in front of him and that he could have just walked and been free and not lived in a bowl any longer. But what happens is eventually the things that bind us blind us. And then we can't see. Students, I think there are some of us in this room who are in some kind of bondage. I don't know what it is. 
Maybe it's an addiction that you have or just a bad attitude or a relationship. I don't know what it is. But I think that God is trying to get your attention. I think that God is trying to speak to you. He's trying to give instruction to you. He's trying to reveal some things to you about your life and about the calling that he has for your life. But you've become so comfortable where you're at, you don't recognize the voice that is speaking to you and leading you, the voice of Jesus, the voice of his Holy Spirit. I think some of us tonight just need to wake up and say, God, I'm ready to hear what you want to say. I'm ready to go where you want me to go and do what you want me to do. God, I want the freedom that you offer. I'm done trying to do it my way. These Roman soldiers didn't even recognize freedom. It was right in front of them. The Bible goes on to tell us that Jesus would would hang on that cross for a little bit while, a little while longer, and eventually he would die. And if you could come, we're going to begin to close out tonight in just a few minutes. But Jesus would, he would hang on that cross for a little while longer. And just before he, he died, the Bible says that he yelled something out. He, he yelled out, it is finished, right? Many of us have probably heard it if we've heard the story. But the Bible was not written in English. It was written in Greek, the New Testament anyways. And so what Jesus actually said was this word, tetelestai. And that word, tetelestai, what it means is not just, it is finished. Our English translation doesn't do it justice. What it really means is this, it has been paid for in full. See, that word tetelestai is the exact same word that would have been stamped on the bottom of a tax receipt after someone had just paid off a massive debt. So what Jesus was saying as he hung up on that cross was not, okay, I did it, it's done, all right. It was, no, no, it's been paid for in full. What's been paid for? Sin, sickness, racism, death, anything anyone would ever deal with was paid for right in that moment when Jesus died on the cross. He said, it has been paid for. See, because Jesus lived the life that none of us could have lived, the perfect life that none of us could have lived. But he died the death that every one of us probably deserved to die. But it was so that we could have the life God always wanted us to have. He said, it's been paid for. He said, I know you couldn't afford it on your own, but I just paid for it for you. It's done. And the Bible says that Jesus, he he bowed his head and he, he breathed his last. I love this. He says that he gave up his spirit. He gave up his spirit. I love the way that John, the author of this book, describes it. He says that he gave up his spirit. You know what that tells me? That tells me that Jesus' life was not taken from him. It was given up. See, you cannot steal something that is being freely given. These men did not take the life of Jesus. Jesus gave his life. I think sometimes we forget that Jesus was in control the whole time. Sometimes we think that Satan was really having his way in every single detail, but it was actually the opposite. See, Satan is not the author. Satan is just the character. Jesus has always been and always will be the author and the finisher of our faith. He was in control the whole time. His life wasn't taken. It was given. It was sacrificed. That's the way it had to be. That's the way Jesus did it. And when Jesus died, all of his friends around the cross, his family, the ones who had actually stuck by his side, the few of them that were there, they were distraught. They were brokenhearted. This was Jesus hanging up on a cross, the one that they had spent many years with. 
the one that they had seen do miracles and take a Lunchable and do a miracle with it and provide for all these people on the hillside, the one who turned the water into wine, the one who caused dead people to come to life, the one who caused people who couldn't walk to walk and the blind to see and all of those things. This was Jesus hanging on a cross and he was dead. And all of his friends and family, they thought that it was over. They thought they'd had a good run, but we're done. It's over. But all they could see was what was right in front of them. All that they saw was what happened right there at the place of the skull. The only thing they saw was Golgotha, this place where Jesus died on the cross. And I don't think Jesus' followers and his friends and family were the only ones who thought that it was really over. I believe that the enemies thought that it was over. I believe Jesus' enemies really thought that they had got him that it was done for. I believe Satan even thought that it was done for, that it was over. Satan actually thought that he had won. See, there are things that angels don't even know. Angels are not all-knowing. I believe Satan really thought that he had won. And I honestly believe that the enemies of Jesus did not think just at this moment that they had the victory. I think that their victory in their mind, actually started the night before Jesus went to the cross when Jesus was praying in a garden of Gethsemane because Jesus bent down as he sweat literal drops of blood and started praying to his heavenly Father. And many scholars believe that is the moment where the weight of the world's sin fell on the shoulders of Jesus. And that is the moment when Jesus was turned over to the Roman authorities. And I think that the enemies of Jesus knew if they could get him captured in that garden that the people of the city and the government was so wicked that they would get him to Golgotha. said, if we can get him arrested here in the garden, we'll get him to Golgotha. But see, that was the difference between Jesus and his enemies. See, the enemies of Jesus from a garden, they saw Golgotha. What they did not realize is that from Golgotha, Jesus saw a garden because there was a garden that sat not too far away from where Jesus died. And in that garden, there was a tomb that Jesus would borrow for three days and three nights. But it was not a tomb he would stay in. It was a tomb that he would come out of after those three days and three nights. And when he did, he defeated death, hell, and the grave, any sickness, any hatred, any fear, any doubt, any addiction, any depression any anxiety, anything that people would ever deal with was conquered once and for all when Jesus walked up out of that grave. When he was hanging there at Golgotha, he already saw the garden. He knew how it was going to end. And here's the crazy part, is that this was plan A. This was God's plan A. God knew all along that Jesus was going to go to the cross and die for the sins of the world. He knew all along. From the very first moment when man sinned in the garden, God knew, yeah, I'm going to send my son Jesus. He's going to die on a cross to give every human being who would call on his name the future that I have for them. He knew even in the garden what it would look like thousands of years later. Even the moment where they took the fruit off of the tree, God already knew that Jesus would one day hang on a tree. And even though sin and death entered into a garden, God knew that it would all be conquered in one. When Jesus walked out of that grave, God saw the whole situation from garden to garden and beyond. He saw the end from the beginning. And if God saw it then, students, he sees it now. 
He sees your situation right now. 